Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samarian city called Sychar, near a plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The, Samari the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Sir, what you have, what you have said is true. Sir, I, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, called Christ, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. This, this is, is the, gospel the gospel of, of our, our Lord. Lord. Thank you, scripture readers. A little bit of Bible trivia. That is the longest recorded dialogue that we have in scripture that Jesus had with a person, the unnamed woman at the well. Welcome to Hinsdale Covenant Church. It's good to see all of you today. I'm Pastor Joy. And this week, we're continuing a sermon series that Pastor Simon began last week, looking at, after we've had Christmas time, the gift that God gives us in Jesus Christ, a gift that gives identity and meaning, that's this week, and purpose, that's next week. So before I begin, let's pray. Jesus, through the presence of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see Jesus in the story today? Would you open our ears to hear the word that you have for each one of us? Would you open our hearts so that this story restories us? It re-narrates us so we can find our meaning in you 
and our purpose in you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. What is the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life? Back in college, I asked a boyfriend at the time, what do you think the meaning of life is? He said, to be happy. Now, I was a budding theologian, and I was not happy with that answer. <laughs> These are the challenges to dating a theologian. Um, and in case you wondered, that boyfriend was not the boyfriend that eventually became my husband. I would chalk that up to irreconcilable philosophical differences. But it's an important question, right? What is the meaning of life? And we're exploring this question today in the message, in the story of Jesus. What is the meaning of life? Now, maybe you've heard some pithy answers to this question. And to be happy is always one of them. I shouldn't give him such a hard time for that answer. It's not without precedence. I mean, for people who are Americans, it's, it's in our Declaration of Independence. These unalienable, God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To be happy is not the kind of stupid answer that you might find if you Google it, which I don't exist, which I don't uh, recommend. An answer like 42, which 10 of you will get that joke. Um, but in the 21st century, constant searching for happiness has become the ultimate goal. And this is truly what people who are parents with kids will say they want for their kids. I want them to be happy. If you have a family member or a close friend who's going through a hard time, what do we say about them? I say it too. I just want them to be happy. I've said that. If you've Googled this question, which I don't recommend doing, but I did this week in research for this sermon, and if you Google it, don't, uh, you will find, among other things, this quote by Joseph Campbell from his book, The Hero's Journey. The meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Being alive is the meaning. Please do not copy that down and write down that I said it or I'm recommending it. What this is saying is that we're responsible for making our own meaning for our own lives. Make your own meaning. You get to decide. Look within yourself. Find the answer and then follow your bliss. Joseph Campbell also said that. Follow your bliss, if you wondered. But it's really important to know that for thousands of years of human history, this is a relatively new answer to this question. Before, before the age of reason, before the modern age, meaning was not centered within oneself, made by the individual, but it was defined by their community. You didn't look within yourself for meaning. You looked outside yourself to your community to discover your meaning in the world. But, as you might have noticed from this quote, this has reversed. In our secular age, we're told we can create our own meaning, and that's what it means to be human. Pastor and cultural critic Mark Sayers writes, in the absence of a story or foundation that gives hope or meaning, life has become a never-ending quest for pleasure and experience. Instead of being good, people want to feel good. 
And feeling good makes us happy, and happiness is the meaning of life. I do want to add that that Joseph Campbell quote I just showed is often not uh, reproduced in its full context. Here's its full context. Life is without meaning. You bring the meaning to it. The meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Being alive is the meaning. Again, don't copy this down, please. What is the meaning of life? Well, as you may have guessed it, since you're at church and I'm a pastor, we're going to look for an answer to this question in the story from John's Gospel we heard read before I started talking about theology. We're going to listen in to this conversation Jesus has with this unnamed woman. We're going to learn from this story and then see how it can answer life's most persistent question, what is the meaning of life? So, in the Gospel of John, which is a biography of Jesus, we read that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And he did have to go through Samaria. If you look on a map, the quickest route from Jerusalem to Galilee, which is where he was headed, that arrow is pointing to Jerusalem, is straight through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. But if they would have been driving, which of course they weren't, this is the first century, you would have heard the click of the door locks the moment Jesus and the disciples entered Samaria. It is certainly not a place Jewish people in the first century would have wanted to travel through unless they had to. And also, it is not a place they would ever want to hang out in. Because, as, as John says, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. This is an understatement. I guess they did share one thing. They shared antipathy and hatred towards one another. They shared hatred, a lot of hatred, because Jewish people of the first century saw Samaritans as a sort of mixed breed between the rebellious people of northern Israel and Assyrians who had been resettled in the land to help make this region loyal to Assyria. And Assyrians had a really bad reputation for their torture methods. They were known for skinning people alive and impaling their heads. So the Samaritans were this half-breed of rebellion and violent, torturing butchers. Those are the Samaritans. And, and to add on to this political strife, there was also theological dispute. Samaritans refused to worship in Jerusalem and instead venerated Mount Gerizim as holy. They only read part of the Hebrew scripture, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, they didn't see that as the word of God. So, John's little aside here, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. It's a real understatement. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. And so he travels north from Jerusalem. He travels north from Jerusalem to Sychar, about 46 miles, depending on his route. If you walked this today, and you can, it would take about 16 hours, two to three days of walking. And so Jesus gets to this town, Sicker, and he sits down at this famous well. He's tired. He's walked 46 miles, and he and his disciples have come here, and his disciples go to the village to buy food. The well's a bit outside the village. And Jesus sits down by the well, the text tells us. He is tired and hungry, 
and thirsty and hot and dirty and sweaty, and a woman comes to the well to get some water. Now, we can really romanticize the scene. We can think of it as this pastoral lovely scene between our our clean-robed Lord Jesus and a generous woman in a headscarf and how Jesus teaches her the gospel. But there is a lot more going on in this text. The woman comes to the well and Jesus speaks to her. Hey, will you give me a drink? Sounds normal to us, right? But the woman is shocked. Man, you don't know what you're asking for. You're a Jew, I can tell by how you talk. And and you obviously know I'm a Samaritan. (laughs) How can you ask me for a drink? Because what John isn't telling us here is not only did Jews not share things in common with Samaritans, it was believed in common lore of the day that Samaritan women were in a constant state of uncleanliness. A less nice way to say that is that they were believed to be always having their periods. And so they were considered unclean. And according to holiness law, if you touch an unclean person, you become unclean too. It spreads like a disease. And then when you're unclean, you have to go to the temple and go through the ritual purity laws to be made clean again. So in her mind, she's saying, how can you, a Jewish man, ask me a unclean woman for a drink. Your lips are going to touch where my lips touched. (laughs) Unclean. That's what she's asking. But Jesus, rather than saying, oh no, I'm Jesus, I don't have to worry about that, he answers her question rather cryptically. He says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. In that context, living means like fresh, flowing, clean water. And she's really thinking literally here. She's like, how can you give me living water? You don't have a bucket, duh. How are you going to get down here in this 100-foot well? It's the deepest well in all our land. We keep reading how great this well is. Jesus continues, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will become an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life. Now that's a gift, the woman thinks. She's having to go to the well outside the village at least once a day, which is a normal task chore that the women did. But usually, women would go in groups to the well. They'd go in the morning when it's cool or the evening when it's cool. And they'd go together, and this would be a nice time for chatting and gossiping and hearing the local news. But she's not with the group. This tells us something. She is alone for a reason. She's alone because no one wants to go to the well with her. She's an outcast. And at this point in the narrative, we don't know why, but it's clear that she has no friends to share this daily task with, and that's why she's alone. That's why she's alone during the hottest part of the day, doing the sweaty work of carrying a heavy pottery jug on her head. She's avoiding the neighborhood women, or maybe they're avoiding her. She's thirsty too. And so she takes him up on this offer of a well that she never has to go back to that comes from her. This sounds like an amazing, miraculous well. She says, sir, give me this water. 
And he doesn't say yes right away. Again, Jesus responds rather cryptically. He says, go, call your man and come back. This has been an awkward conversation, but this is probably the most awkward moment. <laughs> it's a big, long pause. And it's, it's even more awkward when you know that in Greek, the word for husband is the same as the word for man. So it's probably translated different ways in your Bibles. So it can sometimes we could translate it, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. Go call your man and come back. I have no man Silence, awkward pause. This might be a hint about why no other women are with her. This might be why she's an outcast. And then Jesus, I love this here, and Jesus in this gentle and perfect and wise way, he simultaneously affirms her and rebukes her. He says, you're telling the truth. You're telling the truth. And he adds to it, you have had five men slash husbands, and the man slash husband you have now is not your man slash husband. The your is emphasized. He's someone else's. The man you have now is not your man, and this is pointed and direct. Jesus has enhanced this truth she's admitted to. You have had five men, and the man you have now is not your man. No wonder the other women don't want to hang out. He might be one of the other women's men. Commentators describe this woman in various ways. A serial adulterer, a serial fornicator, and, this is my favorite, at best, her moral situation may be described as irregular or unusual. Now, the truth is, people speculate this, about this a lot, but we do not know the story about these other five men. She could have been a widow multiple times. She could have been divorced. We do not know, but what we do know is right now, she is not living in, in accord to God's life-giving law. There's something sketchy about her past. Jesus knows. We don't know. Jesus knows. But his invitation is not to shame her, but to heal her from the pain her search for meaning in the wrong places has led. Jesus is inviting her to change her water source, as it were, to change from looking for meaning through relationships or from having her own self-imposed or other-imposed identity into finding meaning in a relationship with him. Jesus is inviting her to be known by him, and in being known, when she is known by Jesus, the direction of this influence of cleanliness changes. Before, it's understood that her impurity would go to, from her to another person. But as Jesus talks about this life-giving water, it's a new direction of influence. It's influence that comes from Jesus to her, and then from her, it becomes a fountain gushing rivers of water to influence others. She is no longer the contagious one. Jesus is. He is the source of meaning. It's not the well. It's not the well that's right there in front of her. It's Jesus. But in the face of being known, in the face of this direction of influence changing, she changes the subject. 
She changes the subject because it's safer. It's safer to change the subject and to ask questions than to be known. She doesn't want to talk about her life. She doesn't want to talk about her choices. She doesn't want to talk about her marital status. She doesn't want to be reminded of the shame she's experienced, the sins she's committed. So she gets all suddenly objective, talking about theology. Where should we worship, she asks. Who's right? Are you Jews right or are we Samaritans right? What's the right answer to my theology question? And then, for the third time, Jesus answers her cryptically. Ma'am, he says. It says in your Bible, woman, and that can sound kind of offensive to us, but really it just means ma'am. Ma'am, it's not about where you worship, but who you worship and how you worship, because God is spirit, and true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. I think she's still confused, but she's hopeful. And so she says, the anointed one, a prophet like Moses, he's coming. He'll answer all my theology questions. The Samaritans did look for someone to come. They looked for a prophet, a Messiah, to come He's going to come, she says. The prophet, like Moses, is going to come back. He's going to come back, and he's going to answer all my theology questions. And then Jesus says, I am that one. I am he. I am. I am. And maybe in her knowledge of the Hebrew Scripture, she remembers a time another person met someone on a mountain. When Moses met God, in the burning bush, and God said, I am. Here she is, meeting Jesus, and Jesus says, I am. And so now we can imagine there's another pause, but this one isn't awkward. This is the moment it takes for her to realize that this man, this prophet, is good news. And so she acts like you do when you hear good news. It takes precedence over everything else. She leaves her water jar, the text tells us, and she goes back to town telling her neighbors, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And John writes, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And Jesus stays with them and many more believe. The gift Jesus gives this morally unusual woman is his presence. And through him, the presence of the Holy Spirit becomes like a spring in her and then flowing into the lives of her neighbors. And this is the gift. The gift that the, the contagion, the thing that tr is transferred from one person to another is no longer the impurity that flows from the always menstruating Samaritan woman, but the water of the Spirit that flows from Jesus, and it flows from him to her and from her into her neighbors. Before, her meaning was imposed on her by others, through her ethnic identity, through her stigma as an outcast. These are markers from the outside. But as she engages in this lively debate with Jesus, she begins to find meaning in him, it's less about her, what she's done, her nationality, her individual identity, but through her interaction with this man. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? 
Her meaning comes from being known by Jesus. We can notice she's tried a lot of tactics in this conversation. She's asked questions about identity and culture. She's asked theology questions. But she doesn't go back and share these answers with the community. What she says is, he knows me. And this is why I say it, my friends. Don't Google the meaning of life. Because the meaning of life is not found in a set of answers. And as much as I love theology, and some of you know how much I love theology, it's not even found in a set of theological answers. It's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We think that finding the meaning means finding an answer to our question. We're looking for an answer then. What we need to find instead is a person. I am, Jesus says. I am that one. I'm he. I am. I am. Maybe some of you today are looking for meaning. Maybe you, like the woman at the well, have a list of theological questions. Many of us have those. It's good to have them. I affirm them, and it's great to bring them to church or a pastor. Thank you for your questions. But even if you get the answers to your questions, those alone will not suffice. The answer is a person, and the person is Jesus. There's a guy, Alan Langham. He was a professional British rugby player. He writes in a newer memoir about how he had searched for meaning after a really painful childhood. His father was absent. He'd been sexually abused. And then when he was 14, his mother suddenly died, and he says, I started on a road to destruction, and this road lasted 20 years. He would be in fights for money. He sold drugs. He gambled. He was a professional criminal. He says, I walked into my first prison term as a lost little boy trapped inside a professional rugby player's body. He spent years being released from prison and then returning. And while he was awaiting trial in a kidnapping case, he decided to commit suicide. He said, he writes, with tears streaming down my face, I dropped to my knees and made one final plea to God. If you're real and if you hear me, put a white dove outside my prison window. Show me you are with me. And he says, at that time, I had no conception of the dove being a symbol for the Holy Spirit. I was just looking for a sign of hope, a white bird. The next morning on the ledge, it was full of pigeons. And like pigeons do, they suddenly all flew away at once, leaving a single white dove there toward the back. And he says, something inside me jumped, and tears of joy replaced tears of despair. This was his encounter with God, his experience of meeting Jesus at the well, the Jesus who knows him just like he knew the woman at the well, and the Jesus who so gently invites him to participate in the life that he gives. Life wasn't perfect for Langham after that. I imagine the same for woman at the well. We're all in a refining process. But the life that God gives has led us to a space of meaning, not in the answers we find, but in who knows us. Meaning will not come from good feelings that you conjure up from within or from being surrounded by what makes you happy because feelings change. 
Circumstances change. Instead, meaning comes from a relationship with a God who made us, who loves us, and who wants us to participate in his kingdom. Jesus is waiting at the well for you. Jesus is waiting because he knows you. He knows your past. He knows your future. And he is ready to pour out that life-giving water on the Holy Spirit on you. Jesus is speaking and he says, I am. I'm he. I'm that one. Amen. As we reflect on the words of Jesus today, 